Welcome to On Air with Clean Air Council. I'm your host, Katie Edwards. Clean Air Council is a member-supported, nonprofit environmental organization dedicated to protecting everyone's right to a healthy environment. Clean Air Council advocate Russell Zerbo recently sat down with Temple University graduate Kyle Cruz to discuss their current community organizing efforts working with Temple faculty as well as local community development corporations, ASE and APM, to improve public health and zoning enforcement in North Philadelphia. Enjoy the podcast. Clean Air Council and Temple University reconvened in the past couple of years for a community organizing project that was supposed to be three in-person workshops with the Village of Arts and Humanities. And now it has ballooned into a multi-year community organizing coalition that Kyle Cruz is a part of. Hey, Kyle. Hey, Russ. Thanks for having me. How did you hear about our project? I was actually looped in by Dr. Tina Rosen at Temple University at the the Geography and Urban Studies Department. She needed help with um, story maps and storytelling and getting the voices of the community heard. And she's like, I have this perfect project for you. I'm working with the Clean Air Council. Uh, We're gonna try to tie in the village and we're dealing with a whole bunch of issues all around the city. I would love for you to join our meetings on Fridays. And I was like, sign me up. And here I am in this giant breakfast club on every Friday morning where we meet and talk about a lot of issues in Philadelphia. I don't think that people realize the like origin story because the bit ironic, we keep talking about involving the planning commission, but it got started because APM and ASE were working with the planning commission and brought in some of these smaller RCOs to just get advice about working in the zoning board. And I had known Stasia with ASE and Victoria at APM because we had both done air monitoring workshops. I had tabled at their events for a few years. And Victoria and Stasia were bringing in some of the other volunteer RCOs. I mean, we're talking about, you know, large scale inequality in terms of white, non-white people in the city. But even within RCOs, there's a little bit of an inequality. Like APM and ASE are building housing. They're CDCs. They have capital and are using it. And I think some of the other RCOs were interested in that. How did they do that? How I want to do that. So they started all getting together to meet with the intention of sharing that wealth that APM and ASE have. And at that same time, two years ago, the Planning Commission was offering support for community groups. And then they invited me. So all of a sudden it was APM, ASE, four to six community groups in North Philly and representatives from the Planning Commission all talking about how to promote equitable development in the city. And then it stopped. Everybody stopped meeting. And that was like two years ago. The whole thing fell away. Some staff changed at the Planning Commission. APM and ASE were trying to figure out how to hold these meetings. And then Clean Air Council and Temple got together to do this community outreach project. And I circled back with Victoria and Stasia to cross-promote, get more people to our workshops. And then we just kind of started talking and got the coalition back together, brought in some new people. And there was a real urgency with the other community groups that may not have even been there two years ago. And I think it actually had a lot to do with COVID because it's gotten so much harder to have a community meeting, to have a zoning board hearing. But it's also gotten easier for people in different parts of the city to get together. 
And development has increased. And development, yeah, development never stopped. Lots of businesses have been put on hold, but not development. I started getting increased complaint reporting from demolitions and construction sites because everybody's home. And if somebody's doing construction next to you, you're listening to it all day and just can't get away. And sanitation has been backed up, causing more illegal dumping. And then you're getting more reports on trash removal. And it's like you said, it's causing hazardous runoff. But when it comes to the RCO coalition, and like you said, development never stops. There's also projects around Philadelphia that are continuing on. And one of them being the one that we uh, talk about for a couple weeks now is the, the Broad and Erie project. The Broad, Erie, and Germantown intersection is a really intense one that the city is doing. It doesn't make a ton of sense in terms of traffic safety, but it's also like a prime intersection. I mean, you could show someone a picture of that intersection and you'd be like, that's Philadelphia. It means so much to North Philly residents that it's a transportation hub, both in terms of streets and it's also where the subway is. And I really think that that's maybe one of the reasons why the Planning Commission stopped offering that assistance to community groups is they needed to divert funds to doing this Broad and Erie project. And to their credit, they supposedly sought community input in creating these different designs. And did it in the form of a survey with visual representations of what they're going to build. And we talked about it on our phone calls because we are discussing doing something similar. We want to do our own design survey, a lot more open-ended. But we have since heard residents are a bit up in arms about the current design proposal because the city has selected one after the survey and they just distributed the survey digitally which puts a lot of pressure on community leaders to then distribute that. And now they have selected one design and are now trying to get more feedback on that. But it's not really sitting well with the community group because it doesn't really make sense in terms of like, okay, like you've selected this design. Are you actually, how can I express input on this if you've already selected it? Um, Cynthia on the, the call was saying that we're afraid it's phony. Are you trying to... Is this fake community engagement? And the future of the Broadenary project is going to show if it's phony or not. Is it, are they going to go through with what the community wants? Are they going to steamroll over what they feel is was the best for the, the development? It's good if they want to redo it for traffic safety and drainage and green space. What the communities are wanting. It's bad if it's all just for a new condo that's going to be there and the residents that we're working with are going to get pushed out of their communities and not be able to enjoy it anyway. But, you know, with all that said, I mean, it's it's really exciting to be at the center of all this. And I think we're in a really fabulous position to support those community groups in terms of whatever they want to do. And I think that one of the really cool things about the collaboration, whether it's Temple students, Temple faculty, nonprofit workers... RCOs. And now we have religious leaders in the community on the call, which is really cool. So regardless of what happens with the redevelopment that's happening at Broad and Erie, I think we're in a really beautiful position to engage with that and support community members. And bring awareness. And just focus on, you know, like having this like three prong of design, equity and public health. I think we're really doing some innovative work by bringing all those things together.
we had our Friday morning RCO collaboration phone call this morning. It's getting pretty big. It's getting really big. And we had State Senator Shreve Street on this morning. We did. We did. And it was a great discussion. Because we've been talking about how to bring in elected officials and various city officials. So it was kind of a like a trial run to bring in a state senator because they have an ability to deflect questions. But Senator Street was actually really proactive. Now we really have to get to work. Besides for Rashida, who is the head of the Temple Architecture Department, he was our first big guest. Big guest, actually. It's going to be tough to figure out how he can relate to the city, because we talk about zoning and height restrictions and illegal dumping and illegal burning, none of which are supposedly in his purview. Yeah, he, he passed that all off to other departments, you know, the bureaucracy of city council. And he did say that he was going to have us collaborate with those that have that power and that jurisdiction. I thought the most important thing that he pointed out was the the racial disparity, the income disparity that takes place in the city of Philadelphia in terms of how we distribute resources, enforcement. Just there's some parts of the city where just law is not enforced. And those are lower income neighborhoods of color. And it's just a pressure game. And it was funny because he was giving us good advice about it is a pressure game, but if you apply too much pressure, you miss the chance to engage with elected officials in the city. But that's also his job to use his relationships, his friendships with these people that he was claiming to have. That leverages, if he says, I'm a part of these RCO meetings, he can offer it to these people that have this power to actually make change. When it came to the Broadenary, project, he was very stout and saying that this project will not move forward if we're not using the voices of the community. And that's great to hear from him. But as you can see, the project couldn't move forward if it weren't for him, you know. And it's only because Broad Street and Germantown Avenue are state roads. Oh, wow. I didn't think of that. That is why he has the authority to do that. So it really gets into the weeds of governmental jurisdictions and things like that. Like you literally take two steps away from Broad Street and you're out of his jurisdiction. So one of the things the Community Group Coalition is really focused on is zoning and development in the city. And I thought it was really interesting. The Philadelphia Planning Commission has been supposedly receiving input about, they refer to it as the broad Germantown and Erie redevelopment. They're talking about building more green space, parks, making it safer for pedestrians, which are all things that Clean Air Council supports. But the way that his issue with it was the way that they went about doing it. And I understood what he was saying because it was bizarre in the sense that they did a survey to pick what they were going to do. But how can you get that survey to everyone? And is that survey accurate? of what the community really wants. And it's just online. Like, if you want to do something like that, you have to go door to door. We're lucky enough that all the RCO leaders that we work with in North Philly have really already done that work, which is one of the really amazing thing. Like, we're not we're not starting from scratch. People have been doing this for a long time. And I think the big thing that our group is doing is trying to leverage Temple in the best way possible. Like, Kyle, as a student, like, you have a totally different perspective on that. Yeah, definitely. It's almost, I, I don't want to use the word brainwash, but I'm, I'm a, a tour guide for the university and sure. what we tell prospective students is not what we should be telling prospective students. 
that we are in the community. You know, we don't have fences around our community, but it seems like we're putting up fences in the same way. Like, oh, that's the neighborhood's job. That's the city of Philadelphia's job. But if you recognize the impact and influence Temple has on the community, you realize that Temple should be a bigger player in helping these communities and these issues that surround it, whether it be vacant lots, gentrification, potential projects outside of Temple University, they should be a part of it. It's funny that you mentioned the the fences and one of the focus of our community group collaborative is talking about design and how we want communities to look. And it definitely seems like there is a gentrification design that is creating that kind of mental fence. Like, you know, there's old North Philly and it looks one way and new housing for whiter, more affluent people Mm -hmm. looks a different way. It turns into this panel versus brick. The moment you start seeing reflective, shiny panels next to old brownstone row homes, you, then you know what neighborhood you're in. And that's that's not a good thing. Recognize these very apparent barriers. It, you should be able to flow into one neighborhood to another. Like, oh, wow, I didn't even realize that we went into Fairhill into Kensington. It, there has to be that natural balance, not, wow, I can't cross Susquehanna. You know? Like, oh, look, if you look at the difference between Susquehanna and Cecil B, it's too apparent. And that's, it's like modern day redlining in a way, wow. just by design. You know, demolition, construction, that's air pollution, that's dust. We've assisted community leaders on the call reporting uncontrolled demolition dust. And then for climate change, it's such a big space issue. And one of my really big things, I don't know if other people on the call care, but I keep bringing it up, the safety of infill housing, both in this sense of doing demolition and construction next to existing homes, I think is hugely problematic. And there have been lots of media about that, but also in the sense of climate change, just, you know, heat and water need a place to go. The 1900 block of Page Street, there's only two open spaces on the block and they want to fill it in. Where will water go? Rashida blew my mind two weeks ago because we were having this big debate about row homes versus standalone housing. And I actually think just for pure climate concerns, the unattached housing is the only way to go because it creates space for water and heat to go. And you're talking about sort of like collaborative design. It never occurred to me until Rashida said it that the big drawback of unattached housing like that is the driveway breaking up the sidewalk. So I was like, oh, we could do some really amazing design things, you know, have the unattached housing, but don't have the driveway and do an alley cut through the back. Some, some sort, sort of a hybrid model. There are some like, a design like that, no, but when it comes to the row home or at least denser neighborhoods, what does that entail when we start building unattached housing? Well, we were talking about it this morning and that's what gets me really, really excited about it is the groups that we're working with are leading the ASE and APM are building the best housing in the city right now. And it's all different kinds. They're building more apartment buildings. Mixed income. Mixed income for seniors. Um, Storefronts at the bottom. It's great. It's just like intentional planning. And it works because they're also community groups. So they don't have to go run around. They started with community input and then people said housing. So they started building housing. When I started talking to community groups in Philly six, seven, eight years ago, kind of tried to start putting those pieces together. And it's still a question that we haven't answered on the Friday morning phone calls. 
how much space do we need? The sheer amount of land that the city of Philadelphia owns and the minuscule amount that is preserved for open space or parks. I think it was something like less than one ten city-owned lots was used for any sort of public space, green recreation, and then only one in three were used for affordable or any sort of low-cost housing, which is also a huge priority. Of that stat that you just said, did the city of Philadelphia even offer to do that green space, or did someone have to take an initiative to buy that land and then put a green space there? Yeah, it's all land that has been sold. It's sort of the city of Philadelphia gave it or sold it to another entity. But that is a really interesting point, and it's something that we realized was happening in the zoning board. And I think we could like make a record-setting Philadelphia zoning case. I'm unaware of a zoning appeal for green space. In my experience, I've been around the Philly zoning board for, I mean, not as long as some of the people that we work with, but a few years. And every single case is really, really dense housing. And it presents affordability issues, but it also just presents major space issues. And that was my big deal for the 1900 block of Page Street, is not only was or is the developer proposing to break the height limit on the block and fill in the only two open spaces, but they're also proposing to break the open space requirement. The city of Philadelphia requires 25% of any lot to be open space. And because of zoning appeals, you can just ask to break it. And in order to break it, a developer has to offer something somewhere else. So it's almost like an incentive. So they're like, oh, we donated X amount of dollars to here. Can we get some height on our building? That's what's happening on Page Street. But they don't have to like they're negotiating with that community group. If they didn't have that community opposition, you can just walk into the zoning board and get your appeal granted. Without any, it's more of like a, uh, hmm, it's not a law to do those good things in order to get the height requirement. You're saying that you could walk into a zoning meeting with no incentive for anywhere else and get the height approval. That's, That's why they call it the zoning board of adjustment. They adjust things, the city has laws and regulations and planning guidance and the entire intention of the zoning board of appeal is to bend those rules and there are good uses of it but in my experience is uniformly overly dense housing proposals learning from our podcast and like what you hear, please consider becoming a member of Clean Air Council. Membership information can be found online at cleanair.org backslash donate. That's cleanair.org backslash donate. The negotiations that are happening right now in North Philly are because of decades of community organizing. Previously, in other parts of the city, you can just walk in and get your zoning appeal passed One of my real concerns about the dense housing and the city's having like a a sanitation crisis right now is there's no requirement for air, electricity, water, trash. It matters how many people live in a certain area. Like my trash hasn't been picked up in over a week. And I live alone. But for those dense housing, like to go a week without trash pickup, like it creates a real pest and rodent issue in the city, which... Like, I mean, we're talking about development and gentrification and income, but it all really comes back to environmental stuff for me. 
you're definitely right and I, also my house too it's been a week and a half no garbage has been picked up the pandemic has slowed everything down it has made it harder on the sanitation workers themselves in the city of philadelphia we already have a trash and illegal dumping issue and it's only going to be perpetuated by continuous neglect of sanitation and like you said it ties into density of housing if we avoided that dense housing area maybe the sanitation could have gone down you know like it, there's so many factors that play into this sanitation issue in philadelphia and there's a good comparison with what's happening with the philadelphia school district right now it's like another group of public employees that you are kind of putting in harm's way right now. And it's another purely environmental situation. Whereas even before quarantine, before COVID, Philly school teachers were concerned about lead, asbestos, mold, all these things in these really old Philly school buildings. And now there's obviously another public health crisis going on. It really hit me personally when they showed those photos of those really cheap fans that they're going to use. And the one thing we we did take it easy on Senator Street this morning because we didn't ask him about the Keystone Opportunity Zone issues that we've been discussing. Because I don't know if people realize this, but your city property tax goes straight into the school district. That is how the school district gets funded. So now we have these two big property tax exemptions in the city, the new construction tax abatement and the renewal of Keystone Opportunity Zones, which is a a property tax exemption that you can get if you apply for it or exert some political pressure in the city. But that is literally money for kids, money for public health in the school district that the city is leaving on the table to encourage development, I guess. There's a lot of problems with city planning and zoning and enforcement. And it's actually an even bigger problem that the city doesn't have a soil health agency. Soil health is regulated by the state of Pennsylvania. And we've been talking about the school district and all these things. And it is a pretty well-known open secret that the state of Pennsylvania doesn't really like to spend money in the city of Philadelphia. And it's understandable. The city has a lot of its own agencies. They have a water department. They have air management services. They have their own governmental entities but they don't have a soil authority. And it's just something that has kind of gone by the wayside. And I'm lucky that we've been able to do all this research into what's happening at the former Philly refinery right now, which is the only reason I'm clued into any of this is because we're working on this really, really big land use case down there. And it does go back to zoning because the big shortfall of the state's land recycling soil health law It's actually only invoked when you change the use of a site. So people think that there are just like general requirements to test land and remediate it. That's not true. So if they were to build another refinery in that same location, they are not required to test soil contamination because it's the same thing that's going to be there. That is one of the main things the state of Pennsylvania looks at is what buildings are there One of the really confusing aspects of land cleanups is that one of the risks is, you know, gasoline evaporates. That's why you can smell it at a gas station. Like, that's just gasoline evaporating. So when it's in the ground, it is also doing that. It's just evaporating into the air. So one of the major health risks on contaminated land is when you build enclosed structures. Traps vapor. Yeah. 
but it presents this really weird regulatory situation is you can only test for it after you build that structure because you need that enclosure. And by the time you do that, you know, you've already built the thing. And that's the new thing to invoke the law. It's too late. (laughs) It's too late. So maybe for the sake of a future solution, it seems obvious. Just before you demolish, you're required to test it right after, before anything is built. And then if it's no good, then you need to have the state come in or even the federal government come in. The EPA comes in and cleans it up in order for something else to be built. Like that seems like the the most obvious solution. That's a big confusion too. I was actually on a session that Villanova did today strictly about the refinery cleanup. And that's the issue. Like, when does that all that stuff happen? Like, how do we plan for... Because the issue with any sort of industrial facility is companies go bankrupt and just walk away. Yeah. They follow their loopholes and then they're like, okay, on to the next. And then, you know, like companies make money to pay for their remediation. So if you're not refining oil there anymore and you're just left with this bill, it doesn't really make sense for businesses. They're like, well, how gone. am I supposed to make this? Yeah, yeah, it's I'm gone. not. Who's going to pay for it now? First, the testing. Who's paying for the testing? And who's paying for ruining the land? The textbook example of all of that is in Southwest Philly right now. There's a really large geographic area around the airport and Essington, Fullcroft, Southwest Philly. It was almost all declared a Superfund site because it's just massively industrial. But the EPA realized that that was too big. You can't just declare a third of a city a contaminated site. So they went and they declared the Clearview Landfill and the Fullcroft Landfill a combined Superfund site. It's called the Lower Darby Creek Superfund site. And President Obama allocated federal funds to clean up the Clearview Landfill. And it's been slowed down by COVID. But for the last couple of years, the EPA has been literally digging up people's lawns in Southwest Philly because they live near this Superfund site. Some people know it and some people don't. The company Corman the real estate company that built those houses was actually convicted in court in the late 80s of purposely housing African-Americans around this toxic site that they knew to be toxic. There was a court case and they settled and they paid a certain amount of money and then were just allowed to keep doing business and only sold their apartment complex within like the past couple of years. So for a solid 30 plus years after that settlement, just kept doing business in Southwest But the reason I bring it up is because these two Superfund sites that are next to each other, President Obama got the federal government to pay for the cleanup of one. That's why they're digging up people's lawns in Southwest right now. But the Fullcroft contamination, that was like the trade. We're going to pay for this, but somebody else is going to have to pay for this other one. People don't realize that the John Hines Wildlife Refuge, nation's only wildlife refuge located in an urban setting, is itself a Superfund site. That's the reason it's all elevated walkways and stuff. It's beautiful. I love going there, but it is a super fun site. And it's swampy too. That's the reason why the EPA decided not to lead that cleanup is because it's like marshland. That requires drainage. And when it comes to drainage, you need a reservoir somewhere. So now you have a reservoir full of super fun water. Yeah, that's a project beyond the scope of what they actually have the means of doing. Elevated. That's the answer. Yeah. Well, that's the crazy thing is you can either dig up the land and get rid of everything or you can eliminate the exposure pathway. And that's why they're proposing to completely asphalt the refinery site. 
Well, it's just really crazy. And I think it's so applicable to a lot of the smaller land use cases that we're dealing with is, you know, we don't want people to get poisoned by all the lead that's in that ground. So it is good to eliminate the exposure pathway, but it just so happens that that exposure pathway is going to create 1,400 acres of asphalt next to the Schuylkill in a floodplain. It's impervious. It's not kind of, it's just going to flood. This is a case that you can really extend to other land use situations in the city. And it's, so I'm really excited about New Jersey's environmental justice legislation. To my mind, it's the first legislation in the country that actually says, you know, we're going to cumulatively look at impacts. We're going to look at who lives by the site. We're going to incorporate all that information into environmental permitting, which is really, really progressive. But on the other side of it, like you're talking about drainage in the floodplain, because with environmental permitting, we look at industrial sites all individually. It's like one site and then one site and then one site. If you're in a floodplain like that, it's legal for you to just raise your property out of the floodplain. But that literally makes a worse flood hazard for the surrounding community. Wow, it just goes under your home. It doesn't fix anything. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it, it, it just, just puts onto the next person who can't it. afford to raise it. Or even has the means. Like, how would you even go about, like, oh, I'm going to raise my home this weekend. 1,400 acres of pavement plus three feet of soil. The water situation is just really frightening. <laughs> talking about a lot of scary stuff we um actually was reading this morning that the philadelphia water department just got a hundred million dollar low interest business loan from the state of pennsylvania to redo the water treatment facility that's in the northeast and i was actually talking to some of our peers about it because we're we're trying to write this policy paper about investment into the city We need city agencies to communicate with each other. We need city agencies to, you know, make clear infrastructure investments in the city. And it's good that they're redoing this water facility. But I was thinking about who benefits from that. Is it people upstream in New Hope that are recreating on the Delaware? And Clean Air Council actually has multiple petitions to upgrade both the recreational status and the aquatic breeding status of the Delaware. So it's definitely an effort that we support, but it's something that I've been thinking about. It's like, okay, like we're going to clean up the Delaware, but how can we quantify that environmental benefit and who gets to enjoy that? It just always ties back to community input, right? Whoever plans that, is it a developer run? Is it community run? Is it politically run? A politician says, I'm going to revitalize the waterfront. And who is that for? Like you said, and that's just a question that needs to be answered. That's a question we got to continuously ask. Who is this for? Why are we fixing this community? Are we fixing this community because you want wealthier people to come move in? Or is you're fixing this community because the community asked for it? Riverfront access used to be an industrial asset. If you were doing any sort of big industrial activity, you needed water access. We don't really need that anymore. And now it's a residential 
asset. And yeah, like you're saying, who is this for? Because it's something that, to go back to the broad and eerie in Germantown revitalization that's happening, a lot of the community leaders that we work with get super nervous when everyone is pitching these projects as to how close they are to New York City and how close they are to Amtrak and the train system. Because everybody's well aware that I mean, New York City is one of the most expensive places to live in the world, and people have been leaving in droves for some time, a lot of them coming to Philadelphia, and it really makes North Philly residents nervous, seen as like an invasion. Yep, it's become a joke up in North Jersey, Jersey City, Hoboken, the New Yorkers, the New Yorkers are coming, and they move in droves. A new company pops up, they hire 100 people, those 100 people all move to a single town in New Jersey. And like you said, Philly could be next, right? Like, if the infrastructure is there, if the commute time is there and the residential price, everything, if it's worth it, if it's worth the commute, New Yorkers will commute. And it's meant like, I don't want to seem... Like, I... People can come into Philly. That's cool. I like people. But they're forcing people of color out of their neighborhood. Like, that is the thing that we're talking about. And fortunately for me, there are all these environmental externalities of that that allow me to work on that. But that's really what's happening. When, when you talk to the community leaders in North Philly, like they're they're literally scared. Because the thing about gentrification, it, it's almost like it won't happen to my neighborhood. I see it happening there, but it won't happen to me. And on that Hay Street incident, if you look at that neighborhood, you think that this neighborhood's gonna be untouched for a long time. And then here we come, 2021, you have three-story buildings being proposed in your neighborhood. Never would have thought 10 years ago. But even though 10 years ago we were talking about gentrification, you just don't think it's going to happen to your neighborhood. So I think what we were doing on Fridays and what we're doing now is just keep this awareness up. And now we're going to start going on offense, I believe. You know, What are the tools, what are the resources we can use to fight back against these developers and all these promises of revitalization in ways that helps North Philadelphians. It's going to be really tough, but I think I think the Friday morning group is totally capable of jointly coming up with demands of open space development because that's really the goal. Yeah. And to be able to walk a up a baseline of what communities all should need. Although every community is different, every community has different needs and wants, but there is a baseline of what is good for all of North Philly. And that's what is going to be the big discussion point. Because we even talked about it this morning in the sense of we don't want things to be uniform, but we need a certain amount of uniformity to be a collaboration. Yeah, it makes us stronger. It's going to be really difficult, but I think we can do it in terms of balancing those two things. I mean, that's how developers, I mean, that's how anybody gets their way in the city is you segment people yep. and you're just having a one-on-one conversation. And no budding in. Let's say one developer messes up in one neighborhood. That neighborhood has no way of telling the other neighborhood that don't even talk to this guy. You know, like you said, this uniformity, this baseline. Because what happens is developers will come into a meeting with these presentations and numbers. We ran the numbers. One million dollars will be eventually flowed through your neighborhood. Where, where are these numbers coming from? And how do we know? I don't know what developers you're talking to. Oh, they come in, they'll say, oh, we promise you economic investment. You know what I mean? Like, they just come in saying, like, there's so much money is going to be coming to your neighborhood if we do this. But where is that? Like, where is these coming from? And how do we hold them accountable if if it doesn't work? 
Let's say this broad and eerie thing goes completely down the tubes. It, it turns out to be horrible for the community. What happens? We try again? Or do we hold the developer accountable? Like, what happens? Well, in that case, the developer is the city of Philadelphia. Yeah. And it'll be rough because we're talking about money and resources. So, I mean, are the residents asking the city to restart the community outreach that they did for the broad area in Germantown redevelopment? Because that's what it sounds like. They're saying that you failed at doing this. We, we, we tried to have your input. That They could turn around and say that. We listened to you. We did exactly what you wanted. But we'll see. I think that situation is going to really fortify the group and maybe give us all something to rally around. One of the Arcelas was talking about, you know, subtle racism in civic design review. Like she was saying that, you know, a white community group were allowed to say whatever they want and were expressing all these different opinions in civic design review, which is great. But then when this North Philly community group came up, the same people were just like, oh, well, that's not our purview. You're talking about affordability. This is just about design. That's not what this meeting is about. Which is true. That's not what civic design review is for. It is for design, as the name says. But if you compare the North Philly meetings to, let's say, Fishtown meetings, you're going to get a lot more leeway if you're Fishtown as compared to Tioga. And there's just not going to be the same concerns. You're not going to get equity concerns because people don't have those problems in those areas. So to tell a community, be like, oh, that's not our issue here. It was tough, the discussion about civic design review. There's a really interesting planning institution in the city of Philadelphia, and you sort of learn about architecture, and you have these interesting discussions. But like, is it a total waste of money? Because it's non-binding. And again, we were talking about, you know, just all the pressure the city puts on community groups. Developers have lawyers, they have allies, and community groups are just these volunteer organizations. And then on top of that, you're like telling people to shut up in various situations. Yeah, there's a lot of work to do, but I'm very excited. I think the big step is going to be coming together on design, open space, equity demands. I hope we're able to do it. Our group is growing more and more, and we're getting more and more expertise in our groups as well. You know, it, it is a collaborative effort when talking about these, like, large systemic issues. What do we have? 26 people today? 20, 22 people? I believe so. And what do we start off with? Seven, eight people on average? Absolutely. And now here we are. And having Senator Street come to our meetings. I, no, I'm definitely hopeful. I agree. Russell and Kyle for this educational conversation on community organizing, public health, and zoning enforcement in Philadelphia. To learn more about this work, visit the council's website at cleanair.org, ASE's website at hacecdc.org, and APM's website at apmphila.org. Thank you to our listeners for tuning in to On Air with Clean Air Council. To support our work, please consider becoming a member of Clean Air Council at cleanair.org backslash donate. You can also follow us on social media at Clean Air Council on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.